This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Charles Rowe. Your weekly podcast into England's past is delivered to you every Thursday. So make sure to subscribe to get every episode on your favourite podcast platform. Now, how do you maintain a castle? And not just any castle, one that stood tall for over 850 years, but has recently started to show its age. Well, that's the question we're putting to our English heritage experts this week after a £1 million conservation project was completed to rescue the unique keep of Orford Castle in Suffolk. This eye-catching stronghold has weathered many storms, both physical and metaphorical, in its time, and after a much-needed facelift is ready to welcome a new generation of visitors. Talking us through the transformation are Head Historic Properties Curator and Castle Expert, Dr Jeremy Ashby, Hello, Charles. Lovely to be with you again. And Senior Properties Curator, Dr Shelley Garland. Hello. Hello to you both. So, Jeremy, if I can start with you, what is Orford Castle and where does it sit within the town of Orford and also the wider Suffolk landscape? Well, as you've said, it's in the county of Suffolk, Charles. And for anyone who isn't that familiar with the United Kingdom, I should explain that this is the east coast of England, It's north of the Thames Estuary and north of London. It's sort of just a little bit round the corner. And within Suffolk, if you know that, the major town of Suffolk is Ipswich. And we're northeast of that. And we're due east of the nearest town called Woodbridge. The landscape around, there's a lot of variation in it, but it's a sort of gently undulating landscape. It hasn't got high hills and it's quite thickly wooded in areas. It's it's really very rural. It doesn't have large towns. And Orford itself, I think we call Orford a town, but it's actually the size of, of a village itself. And I will be coming back to this. It's a very beautiful village. The castle itself is right on the edge of the settlement, the town, the village. It's 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 on the western side. But there's plenty of other things quite close by, and you can walk from one to the other, just a little bit to the east of the castle. There's the main square with some lovely houses and pubs and and shops around there. And then a little bit to the east of that is the historic church, St. Bartholomew's Church, which is actually quite closely tied historically to the castle. And then there's a street that turns right and runs down the hill to the quayside, which is appropriately called Key Street. There's one other bit of landscape that's actually really important to talk about right from the very beginning, and that's just actually offshore when you get to the bottom of Key Street. You're not facing right out to sea, because in the way, there's a very interesting feature called Orford Ness. It's a low-lying shingle spit, and that's actually separated from the main town of Orford by the channel of a river, the River Old, which is also a little bit further on, there's Aldborough, and that's that's where it gets its name from. Now, the Ness, Orford Ness, the name means nose. It's a natural feature, and it's been formed by longshore drift. That's the process in which materials, this is flints, pebbles, and shingle, have actually been washed from further along the coast, washed southwards from the area a bit to the north. And um, Orford Ness is actually very important because it actually sits right the way across this part of the coastline and cuts off what would have been the coast actually from the sea. Very, very important feature. And it has a great impact, as I'll be saying a little bit later, in the historic development of Orford. We should also probably say that Orford Castle itself is on Castle Hill. So it's on a mound, isn't it? A grass mound. So it's it's elevated. It is elevated. And as um, Shelley will be describing in a minute, it's actually a very tall building in its own right. But yes, you're right. It is on quite high ground. So as I say, the landscape, it does have hills in it, but none of them are particularly huge. And I think in a landscape that's generally quite low rise, actually to have a high rise structure actually has an enormous impact. It can be seen from a long way away, and you can see a long way away from the top of it. Indeed. Now, we said in the introduction, Jeremy, that Orford Castle's been standing proud for some 850 years. So people are probably wondering now, who built this castle and why did they build it? 
I'm going to give you the short version. And for anyone who wants to follow up on this, we have talked about some of this stuff before on podcast 97, where we talked a little bit about the 12th century in Suffolk and particularly the relationship between Orford and Framlingham Castle, the other really big castle in the area. So the short answer to your question is the castle was built for King Henry II, who comes to the throne in 1154. And we know exactly when in his reign it falls because we've got documentation that covers the whole period of construction. That's very unusual. So the castle was started in 1165 and it was finished in 1173. We also know why the castle was built at that particular time and in that particular place. And that has a lot to do with the relationship between King Henry II and the bigod or bigod family who are the owners of Framingham Castle. Up until the construction of Orford Castle, Henry II actually didn't have a power base of his own in Suffolk. He and his officials were trying to govern Suffolk from far away in Norwich, actually in the county, adjacent county of Norfolk. And the Bigod family at Framlingham really were having things pretty much their own way. If you were a king with ambition to really rule as well as reign, and that's Henry II in a nutshell, that's a situation that couldn't be allowed to continue. And so he needs to build for himself his own stronghold in which his own officials can stamp their authority. And the place that they want to do that is the quite up-and-coming coastal harbour port of Orford. So in 1165, Henry II starts the construction of the castle. And at the same time, is actually putting quite a lot of resources into the development of the town as well. We know, for example, that St. Bartholomew's Church is built a pretty much at the same kind of time and really quite lavishly because of the architectural style of the building, which only really fits for this sort of period in the third quarter of the 12th century. So the whole thing is a royal initiative to counterbalance the o'weaning authority of some very powerful noblemen. How many owners has the castle had in more than eight centuries? And which of these were the most important? Obviously, Henry II is the first person. It's changed hands a few times. And I would actually have to say that in terms of importance, some of its most important owners are right at the very beginning, Henry II, who builds it. It stays in royal ownership between its initial construction and 1330. After that point, the reason for which the castle had been built, it really wasn't as necessary before. The Bigod family had actually undergone a very steep decline in their fortunes about the year 1300. And they really weren't a problem for the royals anymore. And in 1330, King Edward III decided he didn't really need it anymore. And he granted the castle away to the Ufford family, They have it from 1313 till 1419, and it then goes to a succession of other families. So the Willoughby family have it from 1419 to the 1590s. The Stanhope family have it from the 1590s to the 1750s, and they are quite important. There's a big change that they make. They actually do want to put some money into the area, but not specifically Orford. And in the 1600s, they want to develop their own country house, Sudborn Hall, which isn't that far away. And in order to get the building materials to build Sudborn Hall, they actually plunder some of the site of Orford Castle. So that's quite a big point in the history of Orford Castle. From that point, it really wouldn't have been useful anymore. From the 1750s, from the Stanhope family, it passes to the Seymour Conway family or the Marquesses of Hartford, And they keep it until the 1900s. They also live reasonably locally. And they have Orford Castle at some points as a kind of almost like like a hunting lodge. They are quite interested in their field sports. And it's a place where they put a little bit of time and, and money into bringing the castle back from ruination so that it can be used actually to have you know lunch parties when they're they're actually out shooting in the fields around around the town of Orford and that's that's something that does seem to have given the castle its sort of last great lease of life before it really passes out of private occupation in the 20th century in 1928 the Orford Town Trust are given it to look after 
1962, it passes finally to the Ministry of Works, who are the ancestors of English heritage. So 1962 marks the point at which it comes really into the kind of public ownership and, and display that's recognisable for us today. And of course, English Heritage, we came into existence in 1984. And Orford and Framlingham Castle have always been two of the medieval castles that we've been particularly proud of within our portfolio of many medieval castles because they complement each other so beautifully. Yes, and this one, and I hate to compare castles, you and I have both recorded it at Framlingham, haven't we? There's sort of more to Orford, isn't there, in terms of... Um you can really be inside it and um, be un- away from the elements. Whereas at Framlingham, you're kind of standing in an oval broadly, aren't you? I don't want to give away too much because we will be talking a little bit more about actually describing what you can see at Orford. But you're absolutely right that at Orford, there is one building, but it's beautifully well preserved, which is the tower of Orford Castle. Framlingham doesn't have one of those. In fact, Framlingham never did. What Framlingham has got is the curtain wall around the outside And I suppose that's the important thing that I need to say. That's the biggest change to the structure of Orford Castle. Orford was built by Henry II with a curtain wall as well as the tower. And one of the biggest changes that's happened to the castle is that that curtain wall has gone. It was, as I said, it was plundered for building materials in the 1600s by the Stanhope family for the building of Sudbourne Hall. Bits of the curtain wall actually limped on a surprisingly long time, but as a very incomplete ruin. And the last bit was finally taken down in 1841. From that point, only this tower, as it happens, this very well-preserved tower, stands in isolation. And as you said, yes, you can go inside it. It's got interiors, which are very, very interesting. And you can actually get around it very largely, as you would have been able to get around it in the 12th century. Fascinating. Apart from the uh, stone plundering of the uh, curtain wall, which doesn't exist anymore, what are the other major events the castle has witnessed or played a part in over 850 years? Well, I have to say, and I'm sorry about this, its history is surprisingly uneventful. Um, (laughs) It's not unique. I should say there are a few castles whose greatest moments at the moment of construction and thereafter, everything seems to be a bit downhill. I mean, I think, you know, it was built to deal with a genuine situation. Henry II's relationship with the Bigod family was pretty terrible. They were, at certain points, going to war against one another. And it's also worth saying that since it actually faces across the North Sea, that's a coast where landings might be expected. So I think there's every expectation that the castle might have actually had important things to do. In fact, I think it's entirely possible that the castle never saw military action. It came close to it, sure. One of the near misses, I think it probably is, comes right at the end of the construction period. 1173, Henry II went to war against his own sons and his estranged wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who has also, I have to say, been the subject of another podcast, actually, in this series. We're talking all about her. She has a very interesting life. But the war between Henry II and his sons We don't think that it ever actually came to violence at at Orford. We know that the castle, just as it was being completed, was genuinely fortified at that moment. And there's another military engagement not that long after. In 1215, the French occupy much of southern and eastern England, and Orford Castle was briefly in their hands. But I don't think that actually that was as a result of fighting. I think it was just handed over. Even in peacetime... It didn't do anything terribly grand. We think that it probably only ever saw one royal visit. In 1277, Edward I, uh, making a tour of East Anglia and going to the Shrine of Walsingham. He also goes to Framlingham Castle in that year. But I think he probably stays in the Royal Castle at Orford. And I have an account in that year that they actually buy a, a piece of land to plant a royal garden for Edward I's use. We don't quite know whereabouts that was, but it must be somewhere within the general vicinity of the castle that we have. But as I say, I mean, the story of the castle and the story of the town is one of illustrious beginnings and then rather sadly followed by a bit of a decline. And in the town's case, that's the result of, we've been saying, about the growth of Orford Ness and the silting up of the haven. So it was once a very busy port. Now, I think the people who live there might bristle if I called it sleepy, but you get the idea. It is quite a quiet place. Also, 
extremely beautiful. It's got very fine houses from many centuries and the wonderful parish church as well as the castle. So a great deal actually to see when you go there. It's very rewarding. Yes, I agree. I'm quite a fan of Suffolk, I must say. Having done the episode with you at Framlingham Castle, really liked Framlingham as well. So yes, there's lots to see. And it's nice and flat. It's almost like being in Holland or being in the Netherlands. You know, if you've got a bike, then you can cycle around quite nicely, can't you? Yeah, you can. But I mean, it's not like the fens. It's not absolutely flat as a board with big skies. It's just a quite gentle landscape. I mean, there aren't any very high hills anywhere, you know, within Suffolk. So, yes, it's it's, it's very, very pleasant. And as I say, it's very green and very rural. Well, let's talk now about um, Orford Castle and its its architecture and, and what it sort of looks like. Shelley, let's bring you into the conversation. The Castle Keep is quite a unique structure. What can you tell us about its design? Well, it has a very interesting design. I don't think it's unfair to call it a masterpiece of 12th century design, really. It follows a, a strictly geometric plan. It's essentially a round tower with a, a diameter of around 15 metres with three rectangular towers. In addition to this, there is another little rectangle slotted in, which is how you access the castle. Now you go up some stone steps into a rather pretty little entrance lobby above which is a chapel. With the towers, I think the highest point from base to tower tip is around 30 metres. So given that it's lost its curtain wall, you can imagine it stands very proud in the landscape. It's a, a monumental structure. Yes, and 30 metres in feet for anyone who prefers imperial. That's about 98 feet, so nearly 100 feet tall. So quite impressive then, really. And what's the stone exactly You know that it's made out of? It's made out of three different sorts of stone. And that's one of the things that makes it so interesting and what has made the conservation project challenging. It has dressing stones of Barnack stone, which is stone from Lincolnshire. Why bring it all that way, you ask? Suffolk doesn't really have any building stone. And, and, and this is one of the issues that the castle builders faced. Um, it's why you see so many timber buildings in Suffolk. So the Barnack stone was brought from Lincolnshire. Also, Cairnstone brought across from France, a very fine stone, good for carving fine details. But the majority of the castle is constructed with a stone called Septaria, which is a local stone. And colour-wise, I mean, we're going to talk about the transformation, but um, without ruining the end (laughs) bit, how did it look until the transformation? Well, the Septaria stone, which was probably not designed to be visible, is known as a, as a mudstone, slight misnomer, but it's called a mudstone. And you can imagine then that it is a sort of a dark, muddy brown colour. The dressing stones are slightly paler, more honey coloured, as you might expect for, for a medieval building. But essentially, before the project, the castle was uneven, looked a bit rubber-like in places, and was this sort of browny colour. And the base looks like sort of like a greyish kind of colour. Yeah, the as well. base is the, the Barnack stone. So that's the, the stone from Lincolnshire. And it's it's a great stone for building, which is why it was so well well used. It's it's no longer available. It has quite a coarse texture, it, it weathers quite well. And was there any sort of ruination to the castle? Because if people are looking on uh, an online map service or their other pictures that people have up- uploaded to the internet, they could probably see that there's probably a bit of ruination towards the top, I think. Is that right? A little, but really the castle is essentially complete. Some of the wall heads are um, not as even as they would have been. There was quite a lot of reconstruction done in the late 19th century, but also through the 20th century. So there's a certain amount of sort of rebuilding, certainly at the turret level. Yes, definitely um, a really solid piece. What can visitors find within the castle walls once they step inside? Well, as Jeremy said, one of the beauties of of Orford Castle is that you can move around within it as it was always intended. There's been really no change internally. When you arrive, you walk up the bank towards a stone staircase, which takes you up into an entrance lobby, below which originally there was a a cell or or even a dungeon, if we want to to, um, go that way. But from there... There are essentially three floors, each with a large circular chamber. There's a basement, 
in the bottom with a well in it, which is always a good facility to have within a castle. You want to be able to protect your water supply. Then on the first floor, there's the lower hall, above which is the upper hall. So the lower hall would have been used for day-to-day uses. Perhaps the lower part of the household might have eaten there. Some of the administrative works would have been carried out there. And then the upper hall, similar again, but for the family and for more privileged guests. But the beauty of of these two floors is that the rectangular towers offer on the upper floor and the lower floor, they offer kitchens, an extra chamber, perhaps a bed chamber, latrines. So essentially the lower hall and the upper hall can act as two almost separate sets of apartments, which is is quite fun. There's a stone spiral staircase that goes along um, the side connecting each floor, which I particularly love because that has really unusual evidence of shuttering, which is a technique where um, you pour a, a lime mortar in this case, and you support it with boards until it's dry, and that forms the ceiling of this fabulous spiral staircase, which goes all the way up to roof level. Visitors today can see a number of displays as you go through explaining the history of the castle. There's also a a multimedia guide available, which I would suggest using if you want to dive in a bit deeper into the information. And the upper hall also houses the Orford Museum. So this way that it's currently constructed, the way that visitors will see it today, with this sort of cylindrical shape, which is a little bit lower than the three oblong towers around it that sort of encase this, was that always the original shape or has it evolved in shape over time? That is how it was constructed. It remains very, very largely as built. The main difference is in in the context, really, in the loss of the curtain wall and, and the ancillary buildings. But the, the tower itself, in the broader sense, is as built. That's fantastic, isn't it? It's a really amazing survival for 850 years. And pretty but... much unique, I should say. I mean, for a building to survive from the 12th century with only, you might call them cosmetic changes, it's changes to the way that windows have been glazed. As you say, I mean, a little bit of loss of material from battlements up at the top. But, you know, it's pretty well all there and they haven't really added to it or or, or taken away from it. That is actually quite remarkable. And I mean, I I absolutely agree with what Shelley said, that it's a masterpiece because it is. It was a masterpiece when it was new, but it's still a surviving masterpiece. For something that old, that really is an, an extraordinary thing. Why was it necessary to conserve the place if it's survived so well? Shelley, can you explain why it was necessary to spend this £1 million to conserve the castle exterior? And, you know, what problems was it experiencing? Well, we talk about the the castle's form was largely unchanged. Its appearance, sadly, was not. Over time, the castle was beginning to lose stonework and particularly the stone facing We've talked about the position of the castle, it's it's coastal area, it's quite exposed. And so the combination of age, a poor building stone in the case of Septaria, and the salt air has caused a lot of fracturing in the stone. So we're seeing a lot of stone fall in recent years. Well, for many years now, there's been a metal fence around the base of the castle because there was so much stone falling. We didn't feel it was safe for people to become too close to the castle. But also it was starting to affect the way the castle looked. But in some places we'd lost so much stone. It was causing pockets of decay that would cause structural problems above. So we really needed to take a look at it. In terms of why it costs so much, it's a vast area to um, carry out work. And certainly one of the biggest projects I've been involved with, just the physical size of it was was challenging and expensive. Yes, 100 feet times by three towers, plus the central sort of cylindrical shape as well. We covered in all 750 square metres or metres squared of stonework. And I mean, quite often when we do conservation projects, we would pick off a bit of a big building and do that and then move on to the next one. At Orford, we took the decision that the only practicable way was to do the whole thing in one go. So the scaffolding itself, which had to be both very big, but also it had to deal with this very complicated shape with projecting turrets and faceted walls. 
that was actually a, an operation in its own right to actually get the scaffolding done. Mm. As sort of surgeons doing this cosmetic work, what options were on the table and what method did you finally come up with, Shelley? Well, I think the first and most important thing to say, Charles, is that this isn't a problem that snuck up on us. We've known for many, many years that we would have to find a solution. And so around, it would be about 14 years ago now, I worked with some English heritage colleagues to start thinking about this. And the first thing we did was to carry out some trials to see what techniques might best be utilised in uh, repairing and conserving the castle. And we looked at lots of things. The obvious solution to a problem of this nature would be to, to reface the castle, that is to replace the stone that's lost, giving it new weatherproof finishes. But as I've said, the main stone is septaria. Now, septaria is problematic for a number of reasons, primarily because it deteriorates very quickly. It isn't a terribly good building stone. A second problem is that to get stone of a quality to work is very difficult. And I was told once by a mason that for a ton of workable septaria, you would need to acquire five tons of, of stone in its raw state. So we would need vast quantities of stone. Which brings us on to the third problem, which is that septaria is no longer widely available. Historically, it would have been picked up from coastal areas, picked up from shorelines and shallow cliffs along the shorelines. And so it's not possible to acquire stone in that way anymore. So refacing straight away seemed to be a task that wasn't the right option. We looked at facing in a different stone. Now that comes with different issues. If you put on a new stone, you're really adding a new part of the story to the monument and we weren't sure we wanted to do that and what's more you need to find a stone that looks right and also is going to perform in harmony with what's already there. So we looked then at either rendering or shelter coating the castle. Now the difference between these are a shelter coat would be that we would make the stone stable and then paint it with perhaps a lime wash. Sometimes it would be called a sacrificial layer and this would need to be reapplied every few years. So essentially painting it with a lime wash to protect it from the elements. The second thought here was to look at rendering. Again, is to prepare the stone panels and then to cover them in a lime render, which would protect the stone below, but would, of course, change the appearance of the castle. Now, there is some evidence that the castle would originally have been treated in one of these ways. It might have been washed, it might have been rendered. And once we got up onto the scaffolding, we could see at some of the string courses that there was some evidence of render. I would say that that's not completely conclusive, but I think it's, it's a fair assumption. So we decided that we would look at rendering the castle. Now, as I've said, these are vast areas to render and we would need to get it right. So over the following years, we carried out a number of trials. Finally, we put a larger trial up in 2017 and then another one in 2019. And that was the time when we thought, yes, we've got this right. We've got the material and we've got the technique. And that's when we started thinking really seriously about carrying out the project. Mm, really interesting. Keeping the sort of uh, cosmetic surgery theme going, it's almost like you were consulting a patient who couldn't quite remember what they looked like 850 <laughs> years ago, but then there were some clues in some of their fine lines and um, you could therefore make a, the correct decision. So it sounds yes. like, you know, you made the right decision historically. It's not just a, an aesthetic thing, uh, you know, it's, it's actually correct for the building. Yes, I think so. And certainly it's not an incorrect technique. <laughs> no, sure. If Orford Castle was earmarked for restoration since 2008, when did contractors finally start? Oh, the happy day was late February 2022 when we started to put up the huge scaffolding. But this has been in, in, in the making, in the, in the planning for 14 years before that, basically, you said? Uh, yes, it was a long time in the planning. It's really um, painstaking kind of work, isn't it, really, and, uh, and a painstaking project. But how many people eventually worked on site on the project, and maybe off site as well, including English Heritage staff and contractors? 
Well, as I've outlined, we were looking at this for a long time. So there were many people who've been involved in this project. And I have to say, most people who've been involved in it have really loved it. But in terms of on-site, well, on an average day, you might be looking at somewhere between six and 12 contractors working on the site. And the difference in, in numbers I'll come on to later. But in addition to that, there were fortnightly site meetings, and they would have included a number of different people. I would have been there as, as the properties curator, the English Heritage Project Manager, architects, quantity surveyor, the Historic England Inspector might have been there, and of course, representatives from the contractors. So it was quite uh, labour intensive. Mm. I presume in 14 years, perhaps staff have come and gone a bit over this project as well, have they? They have. I've been around the whole time. And one of the English Heritage Building Surveyors retired last year. So he was along for most of it as well. And the Inspector of Ancient Monuments from Historic England, he also had known the project for a long time. So I think there were some key team members who had that that long knowledge of an understanding of, of the castle. There was one other thing too, which is that the contractor who actually did the main project, some of those people had miraculously been involved in some of the trials that we'd done. So they actually, even before they started work on the site, they already had some knowledge of the background that had gone into all of it. And that kind of you know experience is extremely important. It actually does, in the long run, saves us quite a lot of time because then there was really good understanding of everyone involved about why we were doing what we were doing. Definitely. That preparation work uh, scaffolds the rest of what happens next, isn't it, really? Um, Yeah, and that really did work because the final, we call it the exemplar patch, a sample patch that was, was put on in 2019, when we actually looked at it, there were some issues with that. But because the Masons who put that that trial together were then working on the main project they were able to look at it with their own critical eye and see where improvements might be made so it was absolutely good for the project that we had that continuity through of the men working on the site. So that's obviously um, part of the preparation for the transformation can you talk about some of the other stages of the restoration Shelley? So the first section, as I've said, is putting up the scaffolding, which doesn't sound very interesting, but on a site this huge, it's very, very interesting. You can see it from miles away. So exciting to drive over to the site for a meeting and and see the progress of this wonderful scaffolding tower going up. It was enormous. It had 13 lifts or floors and each floor of the scaffolding. Obviously, you would need to climb a ladder to get up to the next one. So I was a lot fitter at the end of this project and there would always be a discussion at the beginning of a meeting of whether we would go all the way to the top and work our way down or work our way up, which was my preference because it gave us time to rest between each each floor of the scaffolding. Once the scaffolding was up and we were able to look more closely at the structure, that's when things got really interesting because we had surveyed it closely but we hadn't been able to get up and really lay our hands on the fabric of the building which is always a fun part the first thing we did was we washed it back and we used the technique with low water pressure but a high temperature to really clean out all the muck and some of the bits of lichens and moss and stuff really to get it as clean as possible and we wanted that because to get the mortar to adhere we needed it to be as clean and dust and rubble free as possible so once we'd gone over it in that way we raked it back with, with wooden tools, actually, just to make sure that there were no loose bits. And one interesting thing for me was that as we were going around with this process, a panel would be worked on and then the masons would come back to it a week or so later and, and more bits had come loose. And that just proved how how in what desperate need the castle was for this work because it was really crumbling quite quickly. Once we'd raked all the loose bits off, it was time to consolidate any fractures and build up where needed. So if you can imagine that where the septaria panels had eroded back, in some cases they were between three and 800 millimetres further back than they would have been originally. And that's a great distance. Now, because we wanted to render over, we didn't want a smooth finish, but we wanted it to not be too wavy So when there are very deep pockets like that, rather than putting in a thick render, which would have been heavy and difficult to dry effectively, we built out. So we used two techniques here. One was that we used septaria. 
Now, in the years running up to this project, one of the things that we did is we sourced at English Heritage, we sourced a modest pile of Septaria stone and we've been keeping it for a rainy day and we've been storing it in a field nearby in Suffolk. And so we all went over there and, and pulled off the brambles off these piles of stone and, and looked at it and discovered that there was around three tons of workable stone that we had in store. So those stones were used to repair some of the deep pockets of decay. Now, these bits of septaria, for the most part, they weren't very big, but that suited our purposes. We were able to pack them in. And plus, we've been saving some of the bits that have been falling off. So we reused those as well. So we packed in with some of the septaria. But some of the areas were just too large and too deteriorated for us to be confident that we get a good render surface. So we used a tried and tested technique of packing out with terracotta tiles. And that gave its own issues because when you do a tile repair, our masons, because they're very good and very particular, were making beautiful flat surfaces with the tiles. You sort of pack in a, a pile of tiles, one on top of the other, and then it has a flat surface. And we were finding then when we were putting the render on, we were getting flat sections within the undulations of the render surface. So we had to rethink that. We were thinking about it all the way through the project. Gosh, is that... There's a lot, isn't there? So we've built up with our stone and mm. our tile and one or two steel pins because the septaria was so eroded under some of the stone dressings, under windows particularly, that it wasn't providing enough support for the heavier barnack and cairn stone dressings. So there are, there are some steel pins within the, the structure now. And then we got to the really fun bit. That was putting on the lime render. Now, we have been carrying out trials to get exactly the correct mix. Includes all sorts of fun things like crushed seashells, oyster shells, in fact. So we had to mix it on site and then apply it in one coat. And each side of the building was done in one go, basically in one day. And this is because we didn't want to have any joins between two coats of render because that can let in air and moisture and eventually cause it to fail. So the depth of the render was going to go on in one go, but also we didn't want something called day joints. Now, a day joint is where you start at the bottom of a structure, and in this case, you would apply the render, and then you get to five o'clock and say, well, it's the end of the day, and you, you leave a nice ledge at the top of where you've been rendering to. And the next day, you come back and you start again from where you left off the day before. And that can leave something called a day joint, which is basically a line, however carefully you dress it. You can see when you stand back when the work's finished, that line. And we didn't want day joints. So each side of the castle was done in a single day. And that's why some days we had six men on site and some days we had 12. Because on the days when we were putting the render onto one of the huge elevations, that was all hands on deck. And it was a monumental effort. I was in awe of them. They, they did the work so well. So the largest panel that we did in one day was 80 metres squared. And that required 10 tonnes of render to be mixed and carried up the scaffolding and then hurled onto the surface of the masonry. Now, hurling is exactly as it sounds. You put it onto, onto a trowel and you throw the render at the stone and that way it splats on really hard and hopefully there's no air bubbles behind it so you get a really good tight finish and then once you've done that it's pressed back with a trowel and that was all done in one day a huge huge effort once that's been carried out the masons go around and they check the mortar every day twice a day they press back any bits that are coming proud they smooth over any cracks that are appearing as the render is starting to dry. And they do this until it reaches a state of being leather hard, which I think is a good term because it's quite descriptive. So once it's sort of dry to the touch, but will give under the pressure of your fingers, that's leather hard. And then at that point, and this is a key part of the conservation work here, it was beaten back with stiff bristle brushes, not pressed, not brushed, but beaten. And this pushed any remaining air pockets out and also left the surface smooth but with a slightly open texture so that any moisture can move backwards and forwards within the render and so won't freeze and in theory won't cause any damage to the render. And so it was all beaten back with a brush 
and then had to be wetted and kept wet for, it varied on each elevation of, of the castle, but for some weeks it had to be wetted. And so that meant that there were two lads going around essentially wetting down the, the bits that had been done once, twice, sometimes three times a day, and then hanging hessian and plastic over it at night to keep it wet. Wow. I mean, that's a long answer, isn't it? But <laughs> hopefully people can understand why this £1 million was spent because there was so much preparation work involved and the physical work of lugging all this material up into the different levels of the scaffold and throwing it onto the stonework and then making sure that all those smaller parts were dealt with as well. So it's a lot of work, isn't it, fundamentally, with, with lots of different things to manage. One key thing to mention, of course, is that the summer of 2022 was a record breaker. The Met Office said that 2022 was the first time that the UK has hit an air temperature above 40 degrees Celsius, which is 104 Fahrenheit. So did this prolonged extreme heat affect the materials, the ability to work on site and any deadlines and also this wetting that you described? That is a really good question. It's a key question, really. When we're approaching projects like this and we think about lime mortars and lime renders, we're always keen to not carry out work during the winter because if it freezes, it, it can really damage it. But we have the opposite problem here. And the opposite problem is if it's too hot and the render dries out too quickly, then there are chances that it will crack and you don't get the set that you need. It was overwhelmingly hot in East Anglia last summer. How the team managed, I don't know. It was up to 40 degrees, as you say, and also quite windy because it's coastal. So it was like working with a hairdryer, a warm hairdryer over your shoulder. And so keeping the castle wet was a challenge because, of course, it's an agricultural area and not unreasonably, the farmers needed to provide extra water to the crops. And so the water pressure lowered on the site and so we were struggling to physically get enough water up onto the castle to keep it wet but by the force of the effort of the team working on it we we did manage that. When did the work finish then? The scaffolding all come down and what was the big reveal like? The scaffolding came down in October 2022. Because it's a huge scaffolding the reveal was was slow because it wasn't up one day and down the next. So we were able to see the castle becoming gradually revealed. Jeremy, what, what was it like for you as well? Were you on site watching the sort of unwrapping of the, the castle? I came up to visit the site, as I'd done a few times during the projects, while some of the lifts were coming down. So I, I got to see it. And I should preface my response to all of this by saying I'd heard lots of reports of how it had been going and also I'd been involved in the planning of it before and I had particularly I'd been very familiar with the exemplar panel which was the look we were going to get as we thought and that panel it has stones still grinning a little bit through the rendered surface and the rendered surface is a quite light creamy color and we thought that's what the tower is going to look like and the first response of it, you know, we were amazed by the scale of everything that was, that was coming out. And I thought, okay, who's going to say it? And then I thought, I better say, it's a bit more yellow than I thought it would be. Because <laughs> it really was actually quite yellow. Now, the reason for that is very largely that actually the chemical reaction in the render was still going on. And we were seeing the effect of how effective it had been actually to keep the surface moist and damp so that actually it didn't cook, you know, as it were, too quickly. It's still an important part of the lime carbonation process that's going on. And that still was happening afterwards. So what we saw was something that looked really quite sandy. And as time has gone on, it's been a bit less so. But anyway, that was the initial response. We were expecting a cream building and actually we got a building that in certain lights, almost looked like it was custard-coloured. So there was definitely, in my mind, this sense of, OK, that really wasn't quite what I was expecting. Golden, Jeremy. Golden, golden. surely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. The agreed term should be golden. It's a much more subtle effect than I think you know we, we all might, might think. So we got used to it, I think, very quickly. And actually, it was wonderful. While bits of the scaffolding were still on. I remember Shelley and I kind of went to all of the bits that we could get to and, you know, we tapped the walls, you know, to check that it was, you know, still sound and, you know, exactly how it could be. And you, I could see 
absolutely how painstaking the process had been. And I was just as Shelley said, was in awe of the workmen that did it. I, I mean, I, I was doubly because it's a work of enormous scale, but it's also a work of very great attention to fine detail. Even the smallest cracks actually could be quite significant in this. So they were very painstaking in making sure that they'd addressed all of that. And what you see now, it's not a super smooth surface. It undulates. We use the word undulate a lot during the, the programme because we wanted to show the stone beneath and the curves of it. And we didn't want to be showing a castle that looked new because it's not a new castle. And I think that that really helps. It's, it is a lovely soft colour and there are these undulations within the render. And so whenever you see it, whatever time of day or the weather changes it, it's always different. It's a very lively finish and I think it's very beautiful. And I think it's very important as well. I mean, you asked a question earlier about what it looked like before we'd done our work. And the castle, when much of the walling was septaria and it was the windows and the corner dressings in Barnackstone, it kind of looked two-tone. It was in, in those days, which is, of course, we all got used to that. It had been like that for centuries. But I'm absolutely certain it's not what the castle was supposed to look like. And actually, the rendered panels between the Barnack stones suddenly it all makes sense and in my opinion it hangs together beautifully as an architectural concept so I know you've used the word restoration a lot and I can understand why people might think that actually this wasn't a restoration project we didn't set out to put the clock back what we set out to do was to conserve the building but we were influenced by what evidence we could find of, of what the building had previously looked like and, and had, as far as possible, gone with that. And I'm absolutely certain that what we have recreated is something that's much more in keeping with the building as Henry II and his workmen initially conceived it. Given the colour change from sort of this greyish dark cream from the top and the bottom and the sort of septaria sort of maroony colour, peppered across the panels and that now changing to a sort of yellowish colour. What's the reaction been from local people? I've been, you know, humbled and delighted by actually how positive some of the people in Orford have been. I had the lovely experience a few weeks after the site had finished to go to give a presentation about this at the History Weekend run by the very wonderful Orford Town Museum. And, you know, it was to a packed house of, of local people. They were so appreciative of the spirit in which the works had been carried out. They obviously found the contractors to have been wonderful people to work with on the site, but they also really liked the effect afterwards. And particularly when it was explained again where this idea had come from. You know, I really didn't get any negative views at all. It's an unlikely thing that you do anything that changes a historic building and everyone will be happy about it. But so far, the people that have spoken about it have been full of praise for the project. And this fence at the bottom of the castle, that's now gone, I believe, because we don't have the risk of anything falling. That's right. The fence is gone. Happy day. You can now <laughs> picnic beneath the castle um, without fear of bits dropping on you. You can touch the castle. You can get up close, have a look at what we've done. It was a very, very fine thing to remove the old metal fence. The visitor experience, you know, we've described you know, how you can go inside the castle and, and some of the interiors, etc. Has there been an investment into the story of Orford Castle within its walls as well as the work that's gone on on its walls? We haven't changed the displays in the castle. They weren't put in that long ago. They're still very good. And the multimedia guy particularly is, is still very fresh. The Orford Town Museum, they refresh their displays as well. So there's always something new to see. But essentially, we didn't need to do anything this time around. Although I suppose there is a something mentioned in the English Heritage Members magazine about this new transformation. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, and, and this podcast too. I mean, it's a, it's a project, I think, I hope I can speak for everyone who worked on it, of which we actually feel very proud. But it is quite an unusual thing for us actually to do something so radical and it's the kind of thing where you know when we can find compelling reasons for doing it the most compelling reason being that we hope that this is a 
for 50 years or more, we're not going to have to conserve the exterior of the building again. And that's very important to us. So the building as tall as Orford Castle, actually, we can't keep putting scaffolding up all the time and doing small bits of repairs. This really did have to deliver value for money as well as making a, a sympathetic change to the fabric. And we're sure that that's actually what the project has done. So for a castle that stood for 850 years and appeared to look okay and look solid, look robust, it's actually been quite major surgery. Yeah, it has. And that's when you consider the age of the castle, that's absolutely right. But in particular, it was just this material septaria, which, you know, they chose it because in those days there was quite a lot of it. I'm sure they knew they were going to be covering it up, protecting it from the elements anyway. But once that render had gone over the castle's history and the stone was exposed, it was really only a matter of time before it was going to have to be conserved, you know, again. And we have now done that. So it's a really good feeling that we've got this precious building actually back on a more secure footing. Was there a sort of drinks reception on the top overlooking Orford and the North Sea to celebrate? (laughs) We didn't, we didn't have drinks at the top. It's a long way to carry everything up the stairs, to be honest. But uh, we we did have we did have a lunch, the team, a lovely lunch together, because it was such a pleasurable experience. And we were all, I think I can speak for the rest of the team when I say that we were all very proud and, and pleased that the work was finished, but quite sad that it was finished because it had been such a lovely experience. And that view as well for people who um, want to visit or maybe can't visit and we need to sort of express to them the view from the top of Orford Castle. How would you describe that view? Oh, it's incomparable because, I mean, the, the important thing about it is that the tower is far and away the, you know, the highest feature within the landscape. So it is a 300, genuinely a 360 degree view. It's a beautiful landscape looking over a beautiful town. I suppose on a clear day, you're seeing really quite a long way. You can look up and down the coast. You can see, you know, I think a good sort of 15 or 20 miles you know, away. Perhaps not beautiful, but I mean, you know, a local landmark is the power station at Sizewell, and often you can see that very, very clearly. You look, as I say, over the town, and looking out over the Ness, you know, you can actually see some of these mysterious 20th century military structures, you know, over there. In fact, I mean, one of the things I have to admit to is that I've never actually been on the boat over to Orford Ness, which you can't, one can do, and that, uh, I think that would be a great thing ne- next time I, I go to Orford. But a bit like as how Shelley was describing feeling sad. I mean, I, I feel both proud and sad. It's always been one of the favourites of mine to actually go to Orford Castle. And now <laughs> we've conserved the building, so I'm not quite sure what's going to call me there anymore. And that's a great pity because it's always been such a joy to actually visit. Perhaps you could find a budget for an information panel that tells visitors about the facelift. It's interesting you should say that, Charles, because, I mean, for the moment, the conservation in action panels that we had on the hoarding were actually so successful that we have kept some of them. They're not actually on a hoarding around the site now, but they are still there explaining a little bit. But I think that's that's right, that actually, you know, while it's quite a recent thing, I think there is still quite a lot of interest in, in what we did and why we did it. So maybe that that is right. But you know, for now, the displays inside the building, exactly as Shelley said, they were done really quite recently. And I think they're good. They're, they're a real model of, of how these sites can be presented. So the castle has already been presented and now it's been conserved as well. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be taking a walk through prehistory along England's oldest road, the Ridgeway. Once you're up here, up on the chalk downland, you do feel like a long way away from places. It's, it's, it's beautiful. You kind of get that breathing space and really astonishing countryside. Thanks for listening. See you next time.